Stay hungry, stay foolish. Growing up in the high desert of California, today's guest was poor, with an alcoholic father and a mother chronically depressed and paralyzed by a stroke. Today is the director of the Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education, CCARE, at Stanford University, of which the Dalai Lama is a founding benefactor. But back then, his life was at a dead end until at 12, he wandered into a magic shop looking for a plastic thumb. Instead, he met Ruth a woman who taught him a series of exercises to ease his own suffering and manifest his greatest desires. Her final mandate was that he keep his heart open and teach these techniques to others. She gave him his first glimpse of the unique relationship between the brain and the heart. Our guest would go on to put Root's practices to work with extraordinary results, power and wealth that he could only imagine as a 12-year-old riding his orange stingray bike. But he neglects Root's most important lesson, to keep his heart open with disastrous results until he has the opportunity to make a spectacular charitable contribution that will virtually ruin him. Part memoir, part science, part inspiration, and part practical instruction, our guest shows us how we can fundamentally change our lives by first changing our brains and our hearts. We welcome neurosurgeon, philanthropist, director of C-Care, entrepreneur, inventor, and a magician of the universe, author of Into the Magic Shop, a neurosurgeon's quest to discover the mysteries of the brain and the secrets of the heart. James Doty, welcome to the show. Well, thank you so much for having me and appreciate your kind words. And I look forward to our conversation. I absolutely love the book. And as we were talking about before the show, I can see it having such a beneficial impact in the universe for children and adults alike. Let's start with the context which you give in the book, which is your childhood, the state of the nation for you as a young 12-year-old. At that time, my father was a chronic alcoholic. Uh, my mother had had a stroke a few years earlier and was partially paralyzed, chronically depressed, had attempted suicide multiple times. We were on public assistance essentially my entire childhood. I had been evicted from various places. At that point in my life, I was had a certain degree of anger, despair, anxiety, sadness, fear, and a sense that I had no future. And I would actually leave my house, and you mentioned my orange stingray bicycle. I had this uh, that bike, which I had bought from saving money from my paper route. But when things would get particularly difficult, I would jump on my bike and just ride to get away and forget my situation. And on one of those rides, I went further than I would normally go. And I ended up at a strip mall and there was a magic shop. And I walked in and I'd had an interest in magic earlier. And in fact, I had a plastic thumb, which I would use to do a certain type of magic trip. And I had lost it. So I went in there thinking I would buy another one. When I walked in, there was a woman who I describe as an earth mother. She was reading a paperback book and she had these glasses resting on her nose with the chain holding them around her neck. She looked up and all of us meet people sometimes and not as often as I would hope we would, but somebody who 
has a radiance about them, a kindness, uh, a sense of actually a sort of love in that they're accepting you for who you are without making any judgments about you or assumptions. And that's what she did for me. And when I asked her about the thumb and magic in the shop, she indicated to me that she knew nothing about that. In fact, uh, it was her son's store, and she just happened to be there while he ran an errand. And we began talking, and I was used to being treated in sort of a either dismissive or cursory way by people in part because of my age, I assume, and and in part maybe my appearance or how I acted. And she didn't do that at all. I felt like I was an equal with her, that she wasn't looking down on me. And this led to her asking me some questions about my background and my life. And normally I would hide this because I was ashamed, frankly. And in this particular instance, I was honest and open. And after about 20 or 30 minutes, she said, you know, I really like you, and I'm here for the rest of the summer, the next six weeks, and if you show up every day, I think I can teach you something that could really be helpful to you. And that's how our relationship began. And I have to be honest with you. I mean, uh, as you were pointing out in the book, this interaction with this woman had a profound effect on my life. But I had no insight at that time or self-awareness. What really motivated me to return was not only her kindness, but she was giving me chocolate chip cookies as we were chatting. (laughs) And I had nothing else to do. And so I showed up every day. And, you know, if you were to say today, well, there's a lost 12-year-old boy and he's meeting a woman in her 50s in the back room of a store for two hours every day, that might raise eyebrows. (laughs) It's actually something I pulled out, Jim, out of the book was that because the serendipity of your situation and your poverty led to almost boredom and your boredom led to imagination and discovery and curiosity. And it's something that's missing in the world today. And it's an unfortunate thing about the world. You know, we don't see enough children out kicking a ball around or because people don't feel safe enough to do that. So then the responsibility comes back on us as parents or or mentors or leaders in life to do what Ruth did in a safe way and even in an encouraging word into somebody's ear. And I just think that's so important in the world. And that's one of the reasons I reached out to you is your book is a way to do that in today's world. I think you're right. I mean, I think in the modern world, in part because Tragedy is announced on media 24-7, which makes people fearful. In reality, in the majority of places in America or the world, it is generally safe. But you're right, and especially in Silicon Valley, we have this phenomenon of helicopter parents who, you know, they monitor every uh, move of their child. They essentially make a schedule for their child, what they're supposed to do. They want to protect them from getting hurt. They want to protect them from adversity. They want to protect them from people being mean to them. And what we've created is a, frankly, and and this is documented in a number of articles and scientific research, uh, a, a generation of dependent individuals who feel entitled 
and it's actually very unfortunate. You know, my own children, and I have three, but my two youngest are nine and 15. I'm an anti-helicopter parent. I let them go out, and if they hurt themselves, they need to figure out how to deal with it. And it's not that I abandon them, and I'm not there for support, but, you know, if they're going to go and do something and there's a negative consequence, they have to understand there's a negative consequence. You know, I can't protect them, nor do I want to protect them from their responsibility to learn, to mature, and to understand that life has its ups and downs, and that's reality. I agree, and, and actually we teach our children the same, and it's a very difficult thing to do because you don't know how hard you can be because <laughs> you can come across as harsh. My wife came up with this idea of the ruler that if you pull the ruler back, it's going to snap back. So if you take advantage of the world or the universe in a way, it's going to snap back and come and bite you in the ass, essentially. And the boys have internalized that and understand it. So we just, anytime something comes back on them from a negative as a negative consequence we just go well the ruler and they they understand that it, that it, they almost did it themselves in some way but yeah let's get back to the story because i loved what ruth said to you when you met her she said i know how to turn a flicker into a flame and someone taught me and now it's time to teach you and i i love the idea of her as an earth mother i, I heard this term before a light worker where there's certain people on earth which i believe you are with your work, who are here to enlighten others and, and teach them and lead them to at least make them aware of a different way in life. But Ruth taught you some unbelievable lessons. And let's give a context. This was way before mindfulness became popular or meditation in the way it has today in, in Western society. Let's jump into that, Jim, a little bit and tell our audience about what she taught you. No, you're right. This was in 1968. So this concepts of mindfulness, meditation, neuroplasticity did not exist in the West, uh, certainly, uh, and, my, and neuroplasticity, not at all. We thought the brain was immutable, but in fact, it's not. And on an intuitive level, she understood this. And I really don't know her background. But what we know today is that when children grow up in these types of environments that I described, where there's poverty, where there's alcohol and drug abuse, where there's mental illness, potentially where there's violence. It's a form of post-traumatic stress that occurs. You never know what's going to happen to you. You're always tense, anxious. You're always looking around. It's very difficult to focus. And that was the predicament that I was in. And we know those types of in, in those types of environments, very, very few children escape in the context of leading a full, wholesome, successful life. And I did not have a perception of where I was at. And this is very much true of many people. If you're the fish in the water, you don't know if the water's polluted or not, because that's all you know. So what she did first with me as part of really a, a clear vision in her mind of what would be helpful for me was to have me sit down, learn how to breathe slowly in and then slowly releasing it while, if you will, with intention, relaxing the muscles of my body because I had no perception that I, all of my muscles were tense all the time. And nowadays, the term that's used for this is called a body survey, and this is a tenant of mindfulness. And it took a while for me to learn to 
relax, to breathe, and with intention, relax all of my muscles. And by doing that and this breathing exercise, and then either focusing on, in my case, what worked best was a, a flame or candle, but people use uh, a mantra or other ways. But in my case, I ended up using this candle. But what it allowed me to do was to shift from this chronic state of fight or flight, this engagement of my sympathetic nervous system, which is part of our autonomic nervous system that our evolution as a species has imbued us with to protect us and is the opposite of the other aspect of the autonomic nervous system, which is the parasympathetic nervous system or our rest and digest system, which frankly is the state we should be in almost all of the time. So the very nature of this first exercise shifted me from this fear mode and always wondering what was going to happen to be more relaxed, more calm. And when you're in this state where your vagus nerve, which modulates the autonomic nervous system and is dispersed from your brain throughout your organs and has a huge representation in your heart, then you have a sense of calmness. And when you have calmness, amazing things happen. You are much more open to other people. Your thought processes are much more discerning. This part of your brain called the executive control function is working at its best and your physiology works at its best. When you shift from this fear mode, your immune system is boosted, your cardiac function improves, the production of inflammatory proteins is diminished, and the stress hormones are also diminished. So this first exercise allowed me, if you will, to attend and be present. And what many people don't appreciate is when you're anxious or stressed, it's very difficult to be present because you cannot be present to really connect with another unless you have a sense of psychological safety. That sense of psychological safety then is transmitted throughout your body. And people, when they interact with somebody who's fearful and anxious, oftentimes that makes them fearful and anxious. And to connect with somebody, you have to not have fear. You have to be authentic. And it's part of just how we evolved as a species. So that was the first lesson that she taught me. And, you know, to learn to succeed in life, you have to also be able to maintain your attention and focus. So that first lesson was really quite critical. And uh, following that, once, and I, I won't say I mastered it necessarily at 12, but I had insight and was able to do it in a good enough fashion at that time. What she then explained to me through a series of queries was that I had a negative dialogue going on in my head. And what's interesting is most people in the West have a dialogue going in their head. And it is not a dialogue of affirmation and compassion and kindness. It is one of hypercriticality 
And in fact, many people treat themselves worse than any person they know. And the reason that is, is that we evolved as a species, negative events stick to us because negative events are the ones that create fear and anxiety. But we have to be aware of those so that we can respond. As an example, on the savannas in Africa, where we began as a species, and remember, our DNA has not changed in the last 200,000 years. You know, seeing the grass move basically alerts us to the fact that there's probably a lion there. And that then stimulates this flight or fight response. And our physiology changes and we respond accordingly. Our pupils dilate, blood is diverted to our skeletal muscle, our heart rate increases, and hopefully we escape. And it's a wonderful system in that environment. But in modern society, words, events, things that we were never really attuned to on the savannah in Africa or did not exist, result in this chronic stimulation for many of their sympathetic nervous system. And words that people say that are negative, that elicit fear or anxiety, stick in your head. And oftentimes, this becomes almost like a recording or a radio station with the same song set that says you're not good enough, you're not smart enough. It promotes this idea of this imposter syndrome. You shouldn't really be here. You weren't really meant for this position. And that dialogue goes on in many, many people's heads all day long. And for me, I had already developed that dialogue. It was saying you know, I was never going to amount to anything. I wasn't really smart. I couldn't really compete. I really wasn't worthy. Etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And through her series of questions, she made me understand not only that there was the existence of this, but also that that dialogue was not me. It did not represent me. It was actually an artificial construct that I had created in my head that I thought was me or was true. And the thing is, if you sit there and tell yourself that you're not able to do something, that you don't deserve something, then by the very nature of that commentary, you're not going to be able to accomplish that or you will not accept either love or acknowledgement, etc. And once I realized that it wasn't real, uh, a light bulb went off in my head. And in fact, when we talk about mindfulness again, one of the tenants is to ignore that dialogue, not to get lost in it. And one of the reasons mindfulness works is because you no longer have that emotional engagement with the negative dialogue, which is important. But where mindfulness stops, if you will, and where Ruth went on and what she taught me was that it was within my ability to change the dialogue from one of hypercriticality to one of self-affirmation to one of realizing that I am worthy of love and that within me is an immense amount of power to accomplish things. Sadly, many people give that power to other people by accepting their negative commentary either a parent, 
someone you care about says, well, you're never going to do that. You're not smart enough to do that. And then they believe it. Yet we know through innumerable examples that within every one, they have immense, immense power to change themselves and to change the world. But it only manifests once they believe it. And uh, she made me realize this. Before we go on to manifestation part, and I know he's a friend of yours now, uh, the Dalai Lama said about the stress element, and I've heard you talk about Silicon Valley and the sicknesses there are mainly through stress, there's stress sicknesses, but Dalai Lama said when he was asked about humanity once, he said what surprised him most was man, because he sacrifices health in order to make money, then he sacrifices money to recuperate his health, and then he is so anxious about the future that he does not enjoy the present. The result being that he does not live in the present or the future. He lives as if he is never going to die and then dies never having really lived at all. And I thought that was so relevant to what you said about this fight or flight response that we all live in. And also then the ignorance of the fact that we're not living in the present at all or not enjoying it. We're always thinking about the next thing we need to achieve or the next stress that we have to get overcome. Well, you're exactly right. And in fact, uh, studies have shown and it's a unique aspect of our species in that the majority of people are living in the past with regret about I could have, should have, might have, or they're thinking about a future which has not occurred and of which they have no control, right? And that's where most people are living. And when you're living in one of those two places, you can't be present and you can't truly attend. And I think that's one of the problems of society. And, you know, the example you used, you know, the Dalai Lama's quote, it's interesting. You see people in Silicon Valley, as an example, who want to work here or they have a job here. Yet, because of the high price of living here, they'll live three hours away because that's the only place they can afford a house. <laughs> so then <laughs> they transport here, basically a six-hour road trip to work here. They get paid probably more than they would where they're locally, but they spend so much on daycare and so much on time. They're not home. They don't see their kids and they're really not making that much more money. And obviously they're not living a life, right? So it's a crazy thing that we do sometimes to this naive notion mm. that having more makes us happier. And what's really sad is you see people immigrate to the United States with this false notion. Now, I think we've seen a change over the last few years, but this false notion that, quote unquote, there's the American dream. And if they come here and join our consumer conspicuous consumption society, they're going to have happiness. Of course, it's a false narrative. And many of these people actually come environments, countries where some of these greatest wisdom traditions originated. And interestingly, we know that beyond a certain level of income, you're not happier. And in fact, you don't have to make hardly any money at all. But if you have security for you and your family, if you are able to feed yourself, then in fact, you don't need much else to make you happy. And it's really quite extraordinary. In fact, I have to say some of the happiest people I have ever met are in third world countries where they do not have any of the resources that we have. Because what happens is when you're exposed to all of this stuff, 
you start having craving and you want to be like other people because you think that being like the other person who may have more will make you happy. And again, uh, it's a false narrative. As you know well, <laughs> 75 million up and extremely unhappy. We'll come to that, Jim. But I, I'd love to come back to the Ruth's story because she brought you on a journey first to get in touch with yourself, quieten the mind. But next, it was to rewrite the story and to start manifesting. And certainly manifest you did. And that's exactly right. After I understood this aspect of negative self-talk, if you will, or the power of negative mental states, she taught me a technique to change the dialogue to one of self-affirmation, self-compassion. And we know through the work of Kristen Neff and others, the power of self-compassion. So once I was able to accept that I was worthy of praise, that I could accomplish things, that the future was not dim, that in fact it was unlimited, that started changing everything. And the other interesting aspect, and in fact the next thing that Ruth taught me, was this concept of opening your heart. And the thing is that when you are beating yourself up all the time, and you live in this negative emotional state, it's hard for you to see the world with clarity because it's always tainted by your own fear, your own anxiety. And that is a lens then through which you look at other people. And oftentimes you're critical and negative towards other people. So once she taught me that lesson, it allowed me then to connect with others in a way that I previously was not effectively doing. Previously, I was hyper judgmental and looked at people in the most negative way. And the thing is that what we don't appreciate is that as a species, we evolved to be attuned to others' emotional states through the interpretation of microfacial expressions, body habitus, and even smells. Because those characteristics were part of our survival strategy. And we evolved those to a very finely attuned state. As an example, I mean, if, if your partner walks into a room and does not say a word, oftentimes you are able to know exactly their emotional state simply by looking over at them, right? And this is true of other people. When Ruth made me aware of this and also made me aware that my own suffering was not just me, that everyone suffered, even though it may not appear to be the case, that many people were suffering, and it made me then start looking at other people in a different way, in a more kind way, in a more sympathetic way, in a way in which I could look at their behaviors independent of what I wanted, expected, or desired, but in a more non-judgmental way. As an example, after this time with Ruth, I was able to look at my parents in a different way. I earlier had had a lot of anger and a feeling of abandonment towards my mother and father, and this feeling that of them putting me in this position where I wasn't getting what I needed, and it was their fault. And after this, I was able to look at my parents and be much more kind. I realized that they were suffering and had their own struggles. And that, unfortunately, they did not have a tool set that allowed them to effectively deal with their pain. 
And oftentimes that is manifested by the use of drugs or alcohol or going into depression. When I was able to look at my parents in that way, any anger and hostility I had towards them dissipated. I was left with this feeling of love and kindness, in some way sorrow, that they were going through this. I love that, Jim. I heard this beautiful saying before. Richard Fagerlin, who was a, a guest on the show before, said that when you get bitten by a snake, you don't die from the snake poison. You, you die from carrying it around with you all the time. You have to remove it. It jumped out at me when I read that piece about your parents because we hold on to these thoughts that don't serve us and we blame the other person, but we are the ones who are in power to let it go. Exactly. And this is the concept of forgiveness. There's a Buddhist saying that a monk and his student or a lama and his student come to a river. Monks are not allowed to interact with the opposite sex. And there's a woman, though, who, because of the nature of the river, is unable to cross. So the lama offers to help her. And in fact, he carries her across. As they finish and he says goodbye to the woman, the student looks at him and says, you violated your tenants, you touched this woman, we have this practice, et cetera, et cetera. And this goes on the whole time they're walking. Finally, the Lama looked at him and he says, why do you keep talking about this? He said, I let my feelings go when I finished crossing the river and you still carry them, right? <laughs> and this is yeah. the same <laughs> of an issue. And it also shows the power you have within yourself to change your own perception and perspective right? And in fact, what I say is that when I finished the time I had with Ruth, you know, my personal situation did not change one iota. My father was still an alcoholic. We were still poor. My mother was still depressed. But the difference was everything. I no longer had the same attitude that I'd had prior to this. And what I say is that when you change how you view the world and yourself, the world changes how it views you and reacts to you. And that changed everything. And fundamentally, that changed the trajectory of my life because no longer did I look at people in a judgmental way or feel that I was not worthy of uh, attaining whatever I want. That simple change in perspective changed everything. There's a great example of that you give in the book with the bully, this really severe bullying incident that you interject in. And I thought about this because I have a nine-year-old boy as well. And I tell him that bullies aren't picking on you. They're actually doing something for themselves. It's some projection of what is going on in their own world. And I felt when you had developed empathy, which is essentially what, what you had done through your practice, and you interjected with the bully, the bully could see it in your eyes, that you could actually see into his soul almost and see what was going on. And as a result, step down. It'd be great if you told that story to our audience. Sure. I was riding my bike and I looked over into a field and there were two bullies uh, who had bullied me, beating up a child. It turned out it was a new kid at school and he was laying on the ground and was bloodied and his glasses had been knocked off. And it was interesting because normally I would want to get as far away from that situation as possible. But in this particular instance, after this period of time interacting with Ruth, I actually went over and confronted uh, these bullies. And there was really, one was the real bully and the other was sort of his sidekick. I told him to stop. And of course, that got their attention. 
And since I had been bullied by this individual and a sidekick previously, they turned their attention to me for obvious reasons to beat me up. And it gave this other kid the opportunity to run away. This bully then demanded that I kiss his feet. I basically said, I won't do that. And I'm not going to back down from you, basically. I looked at him really directly in the eyes. And in that moment, he was unguarded in the sense that I could see the pain and suffering that he was carrying. What was motivating him to act out? His own pain from whatever negative experience he had had. At that moment, when our eyes connected, he saw that I saw him. And I saw his humanity. He knew that I saw. And what happened was that in that realization, in that moment, he could no longer bully me. And what he did was he sort of basically pushed me and walked away and said I wasn't worth it. It was really a profound moment, both from my perspective of what I was learning from Ruth, but also the power when you take the time to really look at someone and instead of making an instantaneous judgment, you force yourself to pause and reflect on what the motivators are of people's actions. And then when you do that, you're much more likely to see the drivers of people's actions. His sidekick actually was shocked that he turned and walked away. I'm sure you probably have read Viktor Frankl's Man's Search for Meaning. Absolutely. There's this idea of stimulus and response, and this is how we function in the world. We're stimulated a certain way, and we respond, and many of us respond in a reactive way uh, and not in a discerning or thoughtful way. And what Viktor Frankl says is, between stimulus and response, there's a pause. And within that pause lies our freedom. What he means by that is when you take the time to be more thoughtful about people's actions, you realize that oftentimes what you thought the reason was that they acted a certain way or how you would normally react isn't based on truth or reality or clarity. Many times people are doing behaviors or acting certain ways that have nothing to do with you or even in the context of your present situation, but are a reflection of pain that they're carrying. Even uh, as simple as interacting with a colleague and getting sort of an unexpected result, but then you find out he had a big argument with his wife. Uh, so the situation that you're engaged in with that person has nothing to do with what's really causing his emotional state. Again, this is an issue of being non-judgmental accepting someone not based on your biases or what you think, but actually taking the time to be more thoughtful about what the drivers of their behavior are. And it really does change how you interact with the world and how you see the world and therefore how the world treats you as well. That's what I really took out of the book. It's like that Wayne Dyer quote, change what you see and what you see changes. I really, really got that from this passage in the book. It'd be great, Jim, to share next which is the manifestation part and what we commonly know as the law of attraction today or the secret. But what I love about your approach is you understand what your brain is doing through your work as a scientist and as a neurosurgeon. You know what the brain is actually doing mentally rehearsing 
and therefore how the manifestation takes place. But from anybody I've ever read about, you're the master of it and you absolutely nailed it. It'd be great to understand, in your words, what's going on in the brain, but also how you put it into practice. Well, it's interesting because what I didn't know then is that this ability to manifest things is an extraordinary power that is within all of us. The key is how to get access to it. And if you look at, as an example, we have something called the placebo effect, where we can give an individual a drug and it is a sugar pill, but if we tell them it's going to have a particular effect in a significant number of people, it in fact does have that exact effect, which demonstrates to you the power you have to change really your physical state and in fact to change the physical state around you. We see this also as an example in monks who've spent a lot of time in meditation. In fact, they can change their body temperature, their heart rate, and in fact, uh, there are other examples. There's a fellow you may know by the name of Wim Hof. And this individual is able to go out in a very cold environment and shorts without any shoes and to run. And I think he even was trying to go to the top of Everest with no shoes on and, uh, <laughs> and in shorts, right? And the thing was, though, he was able to control his physiology. And these examples that I'm talking about show you that, in fact, within us is a mechanism to have profound change on ourselves and those around us. And the problem is, of course, it's at a subconscious level for most people. And in fact, and I won't get too far afield, but this relates also to the concept of free will. You know, most of us believe that we are in charge of what we do, but in fact, a number of studies have demonstrated, and depending on what statistic you want to read, either 80 to 95% of the decisions we make actually are made on a subconscious level, and then we rationalize those decisions in our consciousness. And there's a whole variety of studies that show the effect of what we call priming or suggestion and how they impact individuals. And this is what some magicians or illusionists do to people or hypnotists. So it tells you that you do have this immense power. But we know through the work of exercise physiologists and psychologists that by visualizing a desired outcome, in the context of, let's say, a particular athletic exercise, that several things happen. One is you can even think about weightlifting, thinking about it, and have an increase in muscle, muscle bulk. When you revisit a particular athletic technique or activity, you strengthen the neural pathways that allow you to do that activity. When you start integrating this with not only, let's say, a visualization of it, but also writing it down, repeating it out loud, and using all your senses to embed this within your brain, you start creating and or strengthening these neural pathways. And let me give you an example of how you may not realize how it works. 
oftentimes somebody will go to a physician and they'll be told they have a particular diagnosis and let's say an unusual one that they've never heard of before. And then over the next week or two, they run into several people who have it or they're told that a relative has it, et cetera, et cetera. And what's happened there is once you have embedded this in your subconscious, your subconscious then creates the openness and the environment whereby you can manifest these things. So people ask me about, geez, it seems as though these things just happen to you, but they don't just happen to you. They happen to you because you have embedded it in your head. You are open to the opportunity. Your subconscious responds to these subtle cues that they, it did not respond to before. As an example, let's say you wanted to get involved in a certain type of business and it's a new idea and you're really excited about it. And if you use these techniques, well, then let's say you'll be sitting uh, at a, a cafe and suddenly you'll hear a word that may reference that. And then you'll turn to that person, look at them and say, you know, I, I heard this. That sounds exciting. It's something I'm interested in. And I cannot tell you the number of times based on utilizing these techniques of repetition and defining your intention, writing it down, saying it aloud, thinking of it, seeing a visual display of it, and then actually maybe even physically going through it. Every one of those things creates this environment that attunes you to all that's going on around you. And uh, I can't say that it will make every dream or aspiration occur, but I will with absolute certainty tell you that utilizing those types of techniques maximize the possibility of that event occurring. And I cannot tell you the number of times we're either once I embed this, it just starts happening. And one incident after another incident builds on it. It's really quite extraordinary. I'll give you an, an interesting example quickly. As you know, I ended up being successful in business. But this company that I got involved with, which was a medical device company, was going bankrupt. And I was really a believer in the technology. And as it was going bankrupt, I told the founder, I said, listen, I'll save the company. Now, I had no background in business or anything at all. But I embedded this in my head, and then it was with me. And I was trying to think of, I don't know, P, I need to raise money. I don't know people in that area. The company needs to be restructured. How am I going to do that, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And again, I had zero background, nor did I know people. One evening, I ended up going to a bar in the Four Seasons restaurant, in fact, in Newport Beach, yeah. <laughs> where we were talking about <laughs> earlier. That's some and good times there, man. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, yes. I was sitting at the bar and I was thinking about this and I heard a guy next to me talking and he was a finance guy. And I introduced myself. We started talking. I told him about this incredible technology that I believe could save thousands and thousands of life, lives. And it was unfortunate because it's almost bankrupt. And I've been trying really to figure out how to save the company. And the guy was intrigued. Long story short, we traded cards. I met with him. He became my partner. 
And through his efforts, and obviously my own, we saved the company, which ultimately went public for $1.2 billion, and I was the CEO. <laughs> and you look at the examples in the book as well of, of how I got into medical school. How does a person get into medical school when the average grade point average at that time and it is still uh, 3.79, which in the U.S. is essentially an A minus average, and that's the average DPA. And I had a 2.53 and not even a degree, but I manifested a absolute belief that I could do that, deserve to receive that, and that it would manifest. And in fact, it did. It manifested by demanding an interview. It manifested by how I interacted in that interview in the pre-med committee. It manifested how I took the opportunity to on a summer internship. It manifested ultimately to the interview process so that these people believed as much in me as I believed it. There's another piece which I thought was really, really important, which was the planting of the seeds. So firstly, Ruth planted a seed in your mind that you were worth something, right? Then secondly, there was a parent at school day where a doctor came along. The doctor saw something in your eyes and he also said to you, I think you could make a good doctor because you're a caring person. Again, he planted a seed in your mind. And going back to what you said about the placebo effect, there's also the Pygmalion effect. This idea of planting a seed in somebody's mind that actually can make them go and achieve something. And, and I had it myself with rugby. And because of somebody saying something positive to me, I then created a visual in my mind and imagined that happening and then did all the things you talk about in the book and manifested and it happens. And I think it's something that I take out of the book massively that you give a roadmap and it practices how to do it. And I'm going to link to all those different visualizations, which you do on the website. Our journey on earth is also about helping others and passing on to others. And it's something I really took out of the book because that was an essential part of your journey as well, was the kindness of other people. Absolutely. And it is a falsity when anyone tells you that they did something alone. No one does anything alone in this world. It's just not possible. For anyone to achieve at a great level, it takes a number of people behind them that support them, that believe in them, that create the opportunity for them. And that's why I appreciate everyone around me who has given me a love, support, and have believed in my goals and aspirations. And again, as you point out, what many of us forget is how when somebody supports an aspiration that we have, it actually empowers us. And in some ways, it gets back to what we we're talking about earlier. You know, how many times have you shared even uh, with a loved one even, you know, I want to do this. And sadly, what they'll do is they'll look at you and go, you'll never be able to do that. And I cannot tell you the number of times where people have said to me how hurtful and painful comment like that has been. Now, for some people, it has stimulated them to, I'm going to show them. But why have a negative be the driver to show somebody versus a positive and be able to say, not, I've carried this pain and hurt that you inflicted on me my whole life to prove to you, versus saying, you know, the fact that you believed in me early on, 
empowered me and gave me the strength to do what I'm doing today. Look at the difference. You carry your whole life the sense of love, empowerment, belief with you versus carrying this heavy load of trying to prove that you're worthy. And I think this is the profound difference between those types of narratives. And hopefully what this does is it shows everyone the power of each of us to have a profound effect on another's life simply by being kind. And I think hopefully that's the greatest lesson that this book offers. Jim, I'd love to ask you this last thing, which is C-Care, the center that you set up and the massive sacrifice or gesture that you made, which was when you were bankrupt, essentially, and you went through with your decision to give your stock to charity and the opening of the heart and the trusting in that, that led to a, a total revelation in your life. What had happened was here I had accomplished everything that I had wanted in the sense of professional financial success and, if you will, quote unquote, was living the dream. And here I'm driving a Ferrari. I I live in a penthouse overlooking the city, dating beautiful women. And every evening I would come home more unhappy than I had ever been in my life. As you point out, what happened was I ended up during the dot-com crash uh, losing almost $80 million in six weeks and being about $3 million in the hole. I had to get rid of everything. And it put me at this point of reflection. In fact, the reflection of all the lessons Ruth taught me. And while I was always kind and nice, it was always about me. And in this period of reflection following this, I realized that what ultimately makes one happy and the happiest I had been was when I was in service to other people. And I had made some decisions to give some donations when I had all this money, and now here I am bankrupt. And the company that I had run uh, had not yet gone public. And so in this moment of reflection, I ended up giving every share of stock away to charity. And that is the company that went public for $1.2 billion. So here I built this <laughs> that, uh, you know, actually now uh, these devices are all over the world. It's called a cyber knife and have saved hundreds of thousands of lives and have changed the dynamic of how cancer care is given in certain cases. Yet, Every penny I made from that, I gave away to charity and have set up health clinics all over the world, programs for AIDS, HIV. But that mere act gave me liberation because what I didn't appreciate was that I had still had this monkey on my own back. And this was a belief that if I did all of these things, had money, professional success, all the exterior baggage of success that people look at in Western society, it would make me happy, and it did not at all. And when I reflected and made that decision, I was liberated from that, and that has actually led to my greatest success and wealth. It allowed me to create the center at Stanford and have an impact in the world 
promoting the power of compassion to change one's life and the lives of others. It allowed me to develop a relationship with the Dalai Lama, and frankly, also the major spiritual leaders in the world, and has allowed me to truly live. You know, I make a statement sometimes, I give a lecture, and I say, for the first quarter of a century as a neurosurgeon, my job was to prevent death. But the, one of the greatest aspects is that I was with people who were dying who truly lived. The last 10 years of my life as a neuroscientist has been a study of what stops people from truly living. And what stops people from truly living is that they are not being of service to others. And Jim, where can people find out more about your work? I'll share the links to the book and to the meditations, but where can people find out more about Seacare, for example? So uh, the Center for Compassion and Altruism Research and Education is part of the School of Medicine at Stanford, and you can find it at Seacare, ccare.stanford.edu. And if anyone is interested either in getting involved or donating, there are mechanisms to do so on that website. And there's also hundreds of hours of videos, of conversations. In fact, me with a number of interesting individuals talking about the power of compassion, including the Dalai Lama, Eckhart Tolle, Amma, the hugging saint, and a variety of other individuals. There's also a lot of science articles there. Additionally, in regard to the book, there's a website called intothemagicshop.com, which shows where you can find the book. The book is, in fact, in almost 40 languages at this point. It's a New York Times bestseller. And there's also uh, something in the book called The Alphabet of the Heart. And there's a podcast about that and the science behind that on that website as well. And there's also, which I'm not sure if you know, uh, a CD of me speaking about aspects of the book. It's, believe it or not, a six and a half hour CD. And it's Lessons from the Magic Shop. And this just came out January 8th from Sounds True. And you can either get it at Sounds True or on Amazon. Author of Into the Magic Shop, A Neurosurgeon's Quest to Discover the Mysteries of the Brain and the Secrets of the Heart, James Ordody, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Aiden, and it's really been a joy and a pleasure. I appreciate it.